Did you know your word choice influences how easy it is for grant makers and reviewers to understand your organization and your programs and services? You know, word choice like you say potato and I say potato. You say tomato and I say tomato, potato, potato, tomato, tomato. Let's have a mock review. And when you write that grant application, it's hard to review with fresh eyes to find gaps, assumptions, or questions that could confuse grant makers. The mock review service offered by D.H. Leonard Consulting provides fresh eyes for any proposal, whether or not they were the lead writers. So contact the team at dhleonardconsulting.com to learn more about putting your proposals through a mock review. Silly singing sold separately. Well, hello there. I'm Kimberly Heisei-Muga. And I'm Amanda Day. And you're listening to the Fundraising Heyday Podcast. We're here to help you make sense of the complex world of grant writing and fundraising, including how to raise funds, win grants, work together, love one another, and change philanthropy things. for the best. All the good things. <laughs> All the good things. And remember, new episodes are dropping every other week. And of course, we'll include uh, cheesy sound effects and songs and all those fun things we bring to the table because learning doesn't have to be boring. We would say we're sorry, but we're, we're not. This podcast is brought to you by our season six sponsor, D.H. Leonard Consulting and Grant Writing Services. Their team can help make grants less stressful by assisting you with grant readiness and training, grant research, grant writing, mock review, as well as providing numerous DIY resources, guides, and templates. Don't let grants stress you out. Did you know that with every Fundraising Heyday episode, we create a coordinating blog post on their website, dhleonardconsulting.com. Check it out today. So, hey, friends, before we jump into today's episode, I want to remind everybody that one of our favorite holidays is just around the corner. Groundhog's Day. Not quite. Arbor Day. <laughs> Yeah. What you got? No, no. Friday, March 10th is International Grant Professionals Day. <gasps> so how are you celebrating, Kimberly? Well, you know, I'm just gearing up for a giant party of strangers because that's how I roll with my introverted <laughs> self. But seriously, um, I'm not doing that. Uh, but all the cool kids are um, get together to go to the hashtag Learn Grants Online Summit hosted by our season sponsor, D.H. Leonard Consulting. It's a free event from noon mm -hmm. to two. They've got six speakers, including Diane herself, so you should check it out. Yep, I too have signed up for this year's event. And of course, there's probably going to be some sort of lunch gathering with my grant peeps because that's me. Sometimes you invite me and I'll show up and sometimes I don't. Exactly. But I know, that, I know that you love me and we'll just keep on going. There you go. So, so I'm shocked that you're planning a big gathering around International Grant Professionals Day. Truly. But uh, we'll move on. Yep. And happy International Grant Professionals Day to all y'all. So, okay. On to today's topic. We've got a fantastic guest with us today. He's quietly been sitting as we've been going through our rigmarole Being here. silly. Yes. So Andrew Olson is a colleague of mine, and he is on a mission to help leaders increase mission impact by developing healthy cultures that accelerate revenue growth. So throughout his career, he's helped over 500 ministries 
and other nonprofits raise more than half a billion, you know, with a B, B, half a billion dollars. He has built and led fund- fundraising programs on behalf of organizations like Covenant House International, Museum of the Bible, the Salvation Army, Care USA, Best Friends Animal Society, and dozens of rescue missions and food banks, which you know is near and dear to this one's heart, across the USA and Canada. He is a two-time best-selling author and the host of a top-ranked show, The Rainmaker Fundraising Podcast. Andrew recently joined Dickerson Baker as a senior vice president of fundraising solutions, where he leads the firm's major gift consulting practice and oversees the impact messaging division that provides communication vehicles to support our clients' major gifts and capital campaign efforts. He is also a certified fundraising executive, so a CFRE. Um, Welcome to the show, Andrew. Hey, thank you both for having me. I appreciate uh, the opportunity to be here and talk with you. And I'm really surprised that for International Grant uh, Professionals Day, you're not hosting a party where you rush through a grant report that's six weeks late. Is that not part of the program? <laughs> that's not a party. That's just Tuesday afternoon. Man. Oh, shoot. Okay. <laughs> What a novel idea. 2024, um, we've got some plans. It'll y'all. be like pin the tail on their overdue report or something. We're going to work on that. I think that's a great idea. Um, and Andrew, of course, uh, continue with our tradition of having guests on our show who've accomplished absolutely nothing in their careers yes. and are just really, you know. Um, in all seriousness, though, it is a trend, um, certainly on fundraising heyday with our guests, where um, we ask guests how they get into fundraising and Pretty much everyone sort of falls into fundraising or is voluntold to get into fundraising and grant writing. So we would love to hear your origin story. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to tell you two sides of the story. The, the very technical side is I was uh, I was working in commercial real estate. I, I, I managed commercial properties in Atlanta through college. And when I moved to Los Angeles um, to be near my uh, future wife, um, I, was, I went to work for a... a probably the largest commercial real estate firm in the country in one of their um, sort of highest performing offices. And I hated it. Uh, it was cutthroat. Mm. The people were terrible, like all sorts of just poor behavior happening in the organization. And two weeks before I got married, I, I had to pull my father-in-law aside and say, look, I, I promise you I'm not a loser, but I have to quit this job. It's just terrible. Like it's not healthy. And uh, so he quickly introduced me to somebody that he uh, was friends with. They were in a, a sort of a, a men's uh, group at their church. And it turned out that the the gentleman is, uh, his name is Mark Reed. Uh, and his father created a company uh, with, under his father's name, Russ Reed, which was mm-hmm. probably the, at the time, the premier direct response fundraising agency serving nonprofit organizations like St. Jude and Moral Vision. Uh, so that's sort of the, how I fell into it side, right? Okay. But um, sort of the, the philosophical, more missional part is um, my father was a pastor uh, when I grew up, and um, he was also a compulsive gambler. So when I was 15, we lost everything. And years later, I have connected that really that was just part of what had prepared me to, um, to care deeply about people uh, in poverty and about um, ensuring that I did my part to help end as much suffering as possible in the world. Wow. Mm -hmm. I'm also a preacher's kid. So um, some of the things that people say are true and some of them aren't and your mileage may vary. That's what I'm going to (laughs) say. I love that. (laughs) 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 
all sorts of things. That's a whole different podcast conversation. That's a different, that's a different, that's like an after hours podcast. Um, I think that may be behind a a, a paywall of some sort. It's a whole, whole, it could be a whole thing. Well, I'm just trying to imagine the conversation. I can only imagine if my husband told my dad two weeks before he got married that he would quit his job because... I don't know that that would have gone real well with my dad. So yeah, yeah. my father-in-law is a gracious man. That's awesome. That's awesome. But also a quick thinker, making connections. You're a connector. I can see where it's like, okay, you don't want to do that. Let's do this. Figure this out. I like it. So, well, um, in a recent article, you talked about the importance of nonprofit CEOs being involved in the organization's fundraising work rather than just sloughing it off to whoever. So when it comes to major fundraising, what role should executive directors and board members, I would say, too, have? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, the, this is actually, I think, a really important topic, and it's something that you know I, I've suffered through personally when I worked inside a nonprofit and um, have advised a lot of clients in in this area. But it's also something uh, before I got to Dickerson Baker that the company had done research around as well. And it's it's really interesting that, you know, when we look at um, the organizations that retain their fundraising staff the longest and and where fundraisers report having sort of the the highest level of satisfaction in their job. That that correlates very high um, with organizations where the CEO or the executive director um, is, is deeply invested in philanthropy. You know, and that's not to say that the CEO has to be the person making all the asks, right? In many cases, that might be a bad idea, but um, but it does mean that 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 senior executive in the organization believes deeply in the importance and the value of philanthropy and creates an environment where. Um, where fundraisers can feel like they're they're important and cared for in the organization and also resources the the development department and the advancement department in a way that people can actually do good work and do it over time consistently. So, you know, I, I think those are kind of the key elements. And, and what we often see is that the organizations that fail are those where the CEO says, and, and I've actually had organizations, uh, CEO say this to me, like, I'm not a fundraiser. That's why I hired those people. And just imagine, you know, if you're the employee who's referred to as those people, it's not going to make you feel like you fit, right? Yeah. I think this one's experienced that. Oh, yeah, absolutely. (laughs) So it's like that. Yeah, that's what we brought you in or that's not our job or Mm -hmm. just write another grant. Yeah. Or yeah, yeah. It's it's disheartening, and I am of course no longer working in those places that had that attitude. So I would fit right in with those survey results. Yeah. Well, I've heard some board members too complain about we, you know, an organization asked them to put a few personal notes on some of the letters they knew, they knew the people personally to just take a minute and jot down, and have heard them complain about you know I had to do that. That took me a few hours, and I'm like, but it brought in. Tens of thousands right. of dollars. First of all, how much were you writing? Exactly. And second of all, why are you on a board when you don't want to do anything? I know. It's, I could feel yeah. a rant coming on, so let's just let's just move on. I can feel it. I can feel it. I can feel it. Oh my goodness. So other and other bits of data that perhaps will not promote ranting on my behalf. Um Amanda dug this one up, and I think it's a really interesting one. The 2022 Major Donor Generosity Report that's published by Westfall Gold um, found that one of their key insights out of this report that is that nonprofits have substantial untapped major donor giving capacity in their own 
donor base, which I'm the choir, they're preaching. But for a lot of smaller nonprofits um, who haven't started to engage in major gifts or haven't dedicated significant time or effort, what advice would you give them? Because I don't know about you, but it's been a major stumbling block to get some organizations to move beyond. Grants are great, but it's not going to give you everything and you won't know unless you ask. It just seems to be a really deep divide. How would you help these nonprofits sort of bridge that divide? Yeah, it really is. You know, it's, and it, and it's not just, unfortunately, it's not just small organizations, right? So I, I was, I was sharing a story with a friend last week. I, I sat with an organization a, a few months ago that, uh, if I were to share their name, like everyone on the planet would go, Oh, we know who they are. Um, they, they raise $26 million a year in their direct mail program. But they spend they spend twenty two million to get that. Okay, that's that's not a great idea. But right, <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, twenty two million. No, you, you did the math right. Yeah, okay. that's and that's the face that I had in the room. Look at you, math whiz. I like I do budgets. I do budgets. Right. Wow. So, so I said to them, you know, why don't you take a couple of million bucks out of your expenses? just reduce the amount of mail you send every year and go hire a half dozen fundraisers and put them where your best donors are and let them build relationships. And all, you know, over the next three to five years, you'll have, you know, significantly more revenue and, and a ton more net. And, and they couldn't get themselves out of this mentality of, well, no, we just do this program and it, it's kind of on autopilot and we don't have to think a lot about it and we don't have to have hard conversations. And, and so at the end of the day, they, they essentially decided to change nothing because it was more comfortable to keep doing what they were doing and, and be able to say, Oh, we're raising $26 million, even though they were only netting four. I mean, I, I, I left the room just thinking like, okay, we, we certainly are not going to convince them. And I have no idea how the board doesn't just fire everybody in that room. But, Everybody um, in that room. You could you tell know, them that the three of us would, would run their campaign for fifteen million. <laughs> right. But I you know, I, I tell you that story because I think this is a really prevalent challenge. And and this is why, you know, part of the, the mission that you talked about that that I feel like I'm on is is not about the tactics of fundraising. Right. And 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 the way that I got here, I was writing a book a couple of years ago, and for that process, I sat with about 80 different nonprofit organizations and had conversations about their, their fundraising. And, and in almost every one of those interactions, I had been called in with the, the you know, sort of preconceived idea that they had a quote unquote fundraising problem. But as we dug deeper, it became clear that in almost every one of them, it was actually either a culture or a leadership problem. Mm-hmm. And, and, and going through the process of, of uncovering that and then having that conversation with the people with whom there is the problem makes it a really difficult, you know, this discussion. And, and it goes from being, well, you just have to tweak the dial on this fundraising tactic, or you have to write, you know, 12 more grant requests, or you have to send another, you know, 50,000 pieces of mail to you have to learn to treat people better, or you have to learn to appreciate donors or, you know, there, there's a toxic environment in your organization and you'll never be successful long-term in your philanthropy if your people can't get along, right? And, and so 
you know, small, large, mid-sized organization, whatever it is, I think the the core here is we have to think differently before we can act differently. And mm-hmm. if you are not, you know, it's it's really easy to say we want to start a major gift program. It's really easy to say we want to raise more money. We want to raise, you know, five figure, six figure, seven figure gifts. It's a whole different conversation to say, I'm going to change the infrastructure in my organization. I'm going to change the culture in my organization. And I'm going to change myself to the point that I make it easy for us to do those things. So, you know, I, I don't want to sound like a wet blanket and, and like, like it's not possible. But the, the, the reality is the first thing we have to do is examine ourselves, right? And, and we have to mm-hmm. say, okay, if we want to start that, I'm all for it. I think everybody, every organization should start there. Um, but we have to have the willingness to have a very realistic conversation about what assets we have and what liabilities we have related to philanthropy and then get about building a plan that gets us where we want to be that might not be as easy as just flipping a switch or hiring a contractor uh, like mm-hmm. a lot of organizations are used to. That also made me think of um, sort of those those issues that you identified are, of course, all very true and all very real. And there's maybe also another thing at work, particularly in smaller to medium size or larger organizations, whatever, whatever the size may be, that it's like this this that scarcity where it's mm-hmm. like we have we can't spend money because then donors won't like us. We can't have computers that work. We can't pay staff living wages like they could make more money, real story. They could make yeah. more money working at Target than they could maybe taking care of kids in our in our after school program or something mm-hmm. like that. So maybe would you agree that maybe part of it too could also be including that take a good hard look at what it is we do and why we're worth being funded? Because I think sometimes that can be part of the equation too for for organizations that are struggling with asking for yeah. for money. Absolutely. So I've got a really good friend uh, named Dennis Van Camp, and he he runs uh, Mel Trotter Ministries, which is a large uh, homeless service provider in the, the Grand Rapids, Michigan area. And mm-hmm. he was telling me a story about he had walked into um, one of the, the men's facilities on their campus, and they're a fairly large campus, and he hadn't been in there in a little while. And and he he walked into the restroom, and he said, like, you know, eight of the restroom uh, stalls were... Um, it, uh, inoperable. They were, they were broken mm. to one, one degree or another. And, and he, you know, grabbed one of the maintenance guys and he was like, what's going on here? Right. We, we have 150 guys a night or whatever the number is that, that are relying on this. And how are you doing this? And the guy said to him, Oh, well, we don't have the money to spend, to do stuff like that, to fix these things. And, and he just stopped in his tracks. And he said, he said to the gentleman, like, look, I'm the CEO. Let me worry about that. But your job is to tell me, hey, this stuff is broken so we can fix it. And, mm-hmm. and, and so, you know, even, even in something like that where it's like, no, this is absolutely a critical need and it's like right in your face kind of thing. Um, I, I think the, the, the nonprofit sector at large has been so conditioned to do as much as possible with as little as possible that oh, yeah. even in a situation like that, you know, this guy who knew there was a problem didn't raise his hand and say, Hey, this, all this stuff's broken because in his mind, no one had any money for anything. And, right. and you know, as, as, yeah. as Dennis tells the story, he's like, we had plenty of money in reserves to do that. Like I, I might not have had enough money to build a new building, 
but I could certainly fix the bathroom, right? Yeah. Um, and, and so, you know, I, I think that's just an example, and there are so many others where we say things like, like you said, you know, don't don't upgrade the computers. I I was on a board of an organization, and I was dumbfounded when I found out that that everyone in the organization had to go buy their own computer, you know, and things like that. It's it's so um, typical in our sector, and and it also means that instead of saying how can we achieve this? We start with, oh, we could never do that, right? And so when we think about um, achieving mission, right? So if, if you are um, a cancer charity and you're working to find a cure, or if you are a homeless service provider and you're working to get people off the streets, or you're working to you know take kids out of the foster care system and find forever homes for them, like in my mind, those missions are so important that we ought to do whatever we can to achieve them. And, and if we start every conversation with, oh, we, we couldn't do that because we can't spend that money, um, there's no there's no way ever that we're going to get to the point where we actually deliver on mission. That's true. Yeah. Well, and not only I think it's a mindset of nonprofit employees, mm-hmm. but it's amazing how many times I hear from friends that know nothing about the nonprofit realm that, you know, I'll say something about an organization. They're like, oh, I don't donate to them because their overhead is so high. And I'm like, first of all, <laughs> how do you even know what their overhead is? Yeah. First of all, and second of all, what's too high? I mean, there's there are things. Uh, is you have an Apple phone? Is is Apple's overhead too high? Nobody questions that. Right. So it's <clears throat> it's all around yeah. from every angle. That is a very frustrating thing. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the the overhead conversation and the narrative that all of these watchdog groups have threaded over the last couple decades. Yeah is really detrimental. Oh, it, yeah. somebody, I, I had posted something about, there was a grant application I was working on that asked so much about overhead and admin and all this. And I was just frustrated. So I took to Twitter and uh, most people were like, we hear you. I know it's ridiculous. You know, here's some resources. But one person was like, well, according to this organization, and it's one of these, first of all, you have to pay to see most of their resources anyway. But it's one of these that they go in and they they rate and judge organizations by not knowing what their mission is, how many people they're serving. They know nothing except for their overhead, yeah. basically. And I'm like, that's but that's what her, she was tried and true, and there was nothing I could say to change her mind. Well, and I, you know, I I challenge it with this kind of question, right? So let, let's say it's a, a a kids cancer charity. You find me the parent who's got a child with cancer, and you ask them. Do you think this percentage of overhead is too high? And I'll tell you exactly. what, there's not a parent on the planet who would say to you, spend every dollar possible to find a cure, mm-hmm. right? So yeah. this is where I think if we are more focused on our own comfort than we are on achieving our mission, it's time to get out of the job. Yeah, it's true. Yeah. On a slightly related, and I promise it's not a rant, Amanda. <laughs> Um, I'm making no promises, but years ago at the food bank, I had a discussion with one of our corporate partners who, who was also very generously wanting to open up employee giving to include the food bank for that year. So lots of individual donor interactions. And he proudly said to me, well, you know, you, you do great work. And I'm like, thanks. You know, it's a, it's a great organization. I'm proud to work here, blah, blah, blah. And he said, one of the other reasons I chose you is that your overhead is, is, is so much lower than other different kinds of organizations. And so 
I actually, at that moment, I was like, yes, and thank you, but this is, you know, obviously it's, we, we want to partner with you, but just for future reference, please don't exclude organization. You know, it could be, if it's a mobile mammogram um, van, their overhead's going to be so much higher. We have a warehouse, we got some forklifts, we've got employees, but we don't have to drive around, you know, radiologists and high tech equipment and and all that other, I I was like, you know, just any, I mean, it was, I knew him. So I felt comfortable having that conversation, but it was like, he really thought he was doing the right thing. And, and um, it was a bit, he's like, Oh yeah. Since he was a numbers guy, I think I could sort of reach him at that. It's like, it's not just as flat you have to look at you know the components yeah. that that uh, go into it it's a message that somehow has gotten out there and just <laughs> stuck and there's no yeah i don't know what the way is to finally convince the world that that's not we just keep talking way. about it yeah. keep bringing it up keep getting it out in front of people keep ranting on the podcast I just tell people like when you get asked about overhead talk about impact you know it, right. it's like a politician right when you ask a politician a question they give you three answers that are not to the question you Not asked, like- right? And, and so I think, you know, that that's what I would say. Like when someone says, tell me about your overhead, let me tell you about our impact. And then eventually maybe yeah. we'll get to our overhead. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's not a bad idea. Fair. So we're going to change subjects here. Um, <laughs> well, I have 20 years plus of grant experience. Um, I'm still a newbie when it comes to the face, faith-based world of um, funding and philanthropy. Um, I've been with Dickerson Baker a little over a year now. So I'm slowly learning just the nuances of the language and the foundations that operate within the space. Um, So what would you say is one of your or anybody's biggest learning curves for working with faith-based versus other organizations? Yeah. It's it's a little bit different. There's a couple things. I think the, the, the biggest one that has been an interesting learning even for me is the idea that in a, in a faith-based ministry setting, um, it's important that we think about, you know, what, regardless of what the organization is, there's, there's often the conversation of like, well, you know, we are ministering to the, the end people, the end user of our services, right. Whether it's a university or, a, um, an international, you know, mission sending organization or, or even a, a local ministry, you know, it's, you think about, the service that's provided in the context of there's an end recipient of the value that we're creating. Right. But the other side of that is that ministry organizations, if they don't, they should, but many look at this and say, well, we are also ministering to our donors, right. And our volunteers. And so it it creates a a really different dynamic and context uh, for the conversation that we have and the relationship that we build with those constituents Mm -hmm. because it's not just about trying to extract value from them as it might be in another organization but it really is about connecting them to the end uh, recipient of our services through the lens that that their giving and their philanthropy is actually part of their obedience to to god right and and, Mm -hmm. and part of that um you know that giving back if you will is is more so in a ministry setting about them um, being obedient to God's calling than it is about just a financial transaction. And when you understand that, it, it creates an entirely different conversation with the supporter that uh, it hopefully creates a more meaningful interaction for them with you and your organization and, and also reminds them 
that um, that you see the the world through the same lens that they do, and, and hopefully right. allows you to create a, a quicker, deeper bond with them. I would say the other thing that I and I've been raising money with with ministries for almost twenty five years now is that um, when it comes to things like scarcity mindset, when it comes mm-hmm. to things like not wanting to lean into relationship fundraising, um, so often ministries are are really challenged in those areas, right? And um, you know, since we got a couple of PKs on this on this podcast interview today, um, th- this will resonate, I think. Um, you know, my my dad was really bad at ever asking for money because as a pastor, he wanted to maintain a certain relationship with his parishioners and he was not comfortable creating a scenario where they might say no to him. Right. And mm. and I think that's true for a lot of people. It's, yeah. it's on a completely different level for ministry leaders, right? Because they're they're concerned about maintaining that connection outside of, of the solicitation because of what it means from a ministry perspective. And so it's often really difficult to get to make that connection for them and to facilitate um, a, a comfort level where they can lean into um, pressing on that relationship for a solicitation. Um, and so it's just a, another challenge that that we're faced with in that arena. Well, I know this varies from faith community to faith community, but do you think that stewardship committees and their like and however they're identified is that something that's maybe coming more to the forefront as a help for someone like a minister so that he or she does not feel like they have to be the only one? Yeah, I, I think it, I think it definitely is. And I even see this outside of like church environments, right? So we see this yeah, yeah. In, in faith-based universities. We see it in, in other ministry type organizations where there is sort of that, that core group of, of volunteers who, who end up, um, you know, leading that stewardship effort and and facilitating the solicitation, and and really kind of managing that process with the the senior, you know, whether it's a pastor or or leader, functioning as mm-hmm. as you know, um, they're not completely disassociated from the fundraising, but they don't have to be the one making the ask, and I think that creates a different level of comfort. It's kind of like the opposite of where where we first started talking, where it was like the CEO's like. I hire them to deal with it. It's like the the direct opposite where the minister's like, I have to do all of this and I can't mess this up yeah. and I can't damage this relationship. It's, it's interesting. Yeah. That yeah. is a big difference. That is a huge difference in mindset. Absolutely. Well, and we, this isn't necessarily in the faith, faith-based realm, but Kimberly and I were really surprised. The um, We went once we've been to a, a podcast conference. Okay. Um, and uh, it was, we had already started our podcast. And so, and we're, we make a living asking people for money. So of course the first thing we thought of is who can we ask to sponsor us because we don't want to have to pay for everything out of our pocket. If we can help it, I don't have to pay for anything out of my pocket. There's that. But um, sorry, we were amazed at the number of people that that was their barrier to launching their podcast is they just didn't know, didn't even know how to ask who to ask, how to ask. And it's, um, it was when we were more worried about which side of the microphone is the right one. That's actually that's our issue. issue. <laughs> not, and I'm not saying that like, Oh, we're just girls that don't know about tech. We in, in, anyway, you don't know what you don't or know. the platforms or anything like that. So yeah, it's just a mind. It was amazing to see what for some people was so easy yeah. in an unrelated yeah. context for us was this big barrier and then vice versa. 
Yep. Mm-hmm. So yeah. it's, I mean, I've, yeah. I've never been to a podcast conference. I think that'd be kind of fun. Um, but I, I have this conversation all the time with people who are like, well, but, but how, how do I find sponsors? I'm like, well, what do you do? Like, just make a list. Right. And it's, it's not, it's certainly not. And certainly not to the board members and executive directors, some of whom I've worked with over the years that were like, do what you want me to, <laughs> To make a list? That's tacky. I don't want to bother my friends or whatever that mindset may be in, mm-hmm. a, in a more tri- in a non-faith-based. You want to have fun with them. You sit bored down in a meeting and you, you give them each a note card and you say, we're not leaving this room until there's 10 names on it. Uh-huh. And then you just <laughs> shut up and wait. Yeah. <laughs> I like That's it. Awesome. There's an icebreaker. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> so a, a couple of times and in some other, um, uh, blog posts and some other things that, that we've, we've looked at before our interview today. Um, you had talked about it's your personal mission to help leaders increase mission impact by developing those healthy cultures. And we've spent a lot of time talking about unhealthy cultures, but what are maybe some, maybe the, if, there, if you could, the top three ways that nonprofits could sort of take a look at what it takes to, to, to be a health, develop a healthier culture. Yeah. I know that's a big question, but I feel like it's just on a lot of people's minds. It's like, where do you mm-hmm. even where do you start? start? So the the first place the, that you have to start is at the top, right? Mm-hmm. So if if a leader wants to to create a healthy culture, they have to be willing to look in the mirror and say, what are the things that I do or don't do that keeps our organization from, from being a healthy place, right? So... Um, do I take care of myself and do I show the organization why that's important? Do mm-hmm. I, do I model the behaviors that I want from my people? Am I willing to uh, surface healthy conflict and to manage mm-hmm. it in a way that doesn't, that, that solves the problem, but doesn't damage the relationship? Am, am I willing to address um, negative behaviors quickly and fully so that we don't allow toxicity to, to permeate an organization. Am I willing to admit when I'm wrong? Am I, <laughs> am I willing to say that I'm not the smartest person in the room and that I don't have to be the one with all the answers? <clears throat> you know, if, if we're not willing to do those things, there's not a lot of hope for building a healthy yeah. culture. And if you were, oh, go, go ahead. ahead. I was just going to just build on that. Sorry. But, um, but, if you are not the, or if you're a person, if you're the development director or the grant writer and you're seeing this, any advice for how to approach your ED or your CEO about that? Or are you saying, you know what, if it's top down, if it's really not working, you, the grant writer, you, the development director, you, the, the yeah. chief development officer need to sort of think about for yourself, what are you willing to try to change what are you willing to not put up with should you leave do you know what i'm trying to say i do Very long. yeah and, I, and i've had folks ask this question about like boards as well right like how, how do you deal with it if there's a toxic board member or something like that and I, I think what it comes down to is how willing are leaders in an organization to um, to take a hard look at themselves and to you know, to have a discussion around this. And it's not to say that, that, you know, if we, if the three of us worked in an organization together and we had a disagreement and, Mm -hmm. you know, 
I might have one idea, you might have another, you might have another. We're not all going to win in that disagreement, right? right? But right. can we have a healthy discussion and debate and come to a conclusion where we say, okay, I I have a perspective, you have a perspective, you have a perspective. You know, you're gonna one of you is gonna win win, if you will, this argument. Um, but I feel heard in the process. Right. Mm -hmm. and, and so if, if a leader is unwilling to create a space where their people can feel heard, mm -hmm. even if they're not going to act on it. Right. So, so, you know, I, I've, I've run a couple organizations and I've said to people like, look, I welcome this dialogue and I welcome you challenging this perspective. At the end of the day, I'm still going to make the decision because I'm accountable to the board and the shareholders and whoever for running yeah. this business. Now I might change the decision I make based on your feedback but I also might not. And, and what I've seen is yeah. organizations where leaders are willing to kind of hold that space for people, you can mm -hmm. get a lot of, of positive traction out of that. If you're just completely unwilling and you shut down conversation, you say, I'm in charge. I don't want to hear your perspective um, or just be dismissive. Like that's, that's where in my mind, somebody says, okay, I'm going to punch out. It's just a matter of finding my next gig. Right. That's yeah. fair. That's fair. That's a huge red flag. Right. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Well, we all know. I mean, I've worked for some bosses that I could work for forever. And then there's some that, yeah, I am looking for that next job because yeah. <laughs> it's just not a battle worth fighting sometimes. For sure. I think maybe for then sure. it would be if you are in that not leadership, top leadership position, setting those boundaries. What am, like you said, Andrew, it's like what. <clears throat> Where are, where are my lines in the sand? Where am I and who am I? Yeah. And then also can help you when you are looking for that next opportunity, what is important to me? Yeah. You know, what do I need to take that next step to really be a servant leader or, or wherever, wherever my path may take me? Well, I think, I think the flip side of that is like, just cause I might feel a, a certain way doesn't necessarily mean that my perspective is right too. So in that kind of interaction, right? Like that's why having the space for dialogue is so important because I might have a perspective, but when we talk, you might share with me pieces of information that I didn't have yesterday that completely yeah. changed the discussion, right? So I think the other big challenge, particularly for, for you know, fundraisers who are, are early in their career is, um, you know, there, there's a lot of tenacity, a lot of eagerness, but not a lot of uh, depth of knowledge, right? And so it's easy to make assumptions and let those assumptions guide your decisions and, and even kind of set the tone for what am I willing to accept? Whereas mm -hmm. if you just sit in the space for a little bit and and let things happen around you and process what's going on, you may have a different perspective. So I, I would just say like, you know, it, be aware and definitely set guardrails for what you're willing to allow in your life. But I wouldn't be so rigid as to say, like, well, if we have a disagreement, I'm out, right? Because oh, no, you're going to yeah. end up moving from job to job and be, you know, one of those small percentage of people that moves every 12 months because of that. Yeah. You're also not going to be very happy in your life. Yeah, for sure. all... That's another podcast mm -hmm. episode. Yep. Yeah. Very true. Well, uh, you shared a lot with us today. I think we covered a wide range of topics all over the place. Um, if people want to connect with you after this, Andrew, where can they find you? Yeah, the the probably the easiest way is to just find me on LinkedIn. Um, I'm I'm there quite a lot. Um, or I can attest uh, to that. Active. <laughs> I said I can attest to that. You're yep. active. Um, or or uh, 
andrewolson.net or you can hit me up at uh, dickersonbaker.com. Cool. Very good. Well, thanks so much for sharing your space with us today. It's just been a really wonderful, wide ranging discussion. It's one of the reasons why I wanted to keep the, I want to keep the podcast going is for conversations like this. Thank you. I appreciate the invitation. It's great to talk with you both. Sounds good. Thank you again to our season six sponsor, DH Leonard consulting and grant writing services. We appreciate their support in making grants less stressful Visit their website, dhleonardconsulting.com, to download their latest resources today. We are so glad that you took the time to listen to this episode and to hang out with us, whether this is your first episode or your 100th episode of hearing what we have to say. If you feel so inclined, something that would help the podcast so much reach other people is to leave a review on Apple Podcasts if that's where you're listening or tell a friend, send a link. And if you want to stay in the know of with all things fundraising heyday and some fun new activities, services, and trainings we have coming up, head on over to heydayservices.com, that's H-A-Y-D-A-Y, and sign up for our newsletter and you will be in the know. It's Heyday Hot Takes. And we promise to always make it interesting. We're so honored that you chose to spend time with us today. Please join us again in two weeks. We've got a very exciting episode lined up for you. So uh, join us to find out more. Bye. Bye, friends.